Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is in partnership with the Koran Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we saw Avshalom enter Jerusalem and following the advice of Achitophel, committing an outrage by sleeping with the concubines of his father, David. This calculated act was intended to send a message to Avshalom's supporters that there would be no turning back and that the rebellion would go forth until the bitter end. At the same time, reading the text from a distance, we appreciated that this particular outrage was also a direct echo and punishment of David's own outrage having slept with Bathsheba. As Natan the prophet had pointed out, the day will come when someone will arise who will sleep with your wives and he will do so in broad daylight before all the people of Israel. Ironically and tragically, that individual turned out to be David's own son, Avshalom. Achitophel now turns to Avshalom and offers him sound advice. David is in retreat, David is in flight, and we must attack immediately, says Achitophel, catching David off guard. My plan, says Achitophel, is to focus the attack using a small force of 12,000 Israelites, presumably a thousand from each tribe, to indicate that this is a national effort. We will focus our attack on David alone. And once David is dead, his followers will naturally come over to your side of Shalom and recognize you as the king of Israel. The text reports, Vayishar hadavar Avshalom, verse number four. The advice was very good in the eyes of Avshalom and in the eyes of all of the elders of Israel. Avshalom now says, I want to just hear what Hushai has to advise. Remember that, of course, we learned earlier that Hushai, David's loyal counselor, actually was a double agent told by David to approach Avshalom, to swear his loyalty, to pretend that he was a devotee of the new king, and at the same time to somehow foil any advice that Achitophel might offer. Avshalom turns to, Achi, turns, to Ach, turns to Hushai and asks for his advice, and Hushai responds, Lo tova asher ya'atz Achitophel bapa'am hazot. This time, perhaps this time only, Achitophel's advice is not good. Said Hushai, David may be in retreat, but he is a seasoned warrior. He is a courageous man. He is a brave fighter. He does not give up. He is clever and he is thoughtful and he will surely prepare for your attack. And when you attack, he and his men will fight like lions, says Hushai. David himself will place himself in hiding, 
so that focusing the attack will not help, and in the end, your own men of Shalom will be beaten back by David's seasoned warriors and they will melt away in fear. Instead, says Hushai, I would like to offer a different approach, namely to gather an overwhelming army composed of all of the tribes of Israel, to sweep down over David and his men and to decimate all of them. With our superior numbers and force, says Hushai, David and his men will not stand a chance even if they retreat into the defensive position of a walled city. We will take down that city stone by stone until we destroy him. Effectively, the difference between both of these approaches is one of alacrity and speed. Achitophel suggests to act quickly while David is in retreat and overwhelmed. Hushai's approach, on the other hand, would require a much longer period of time in order to muster that army, in order to raise that force, and in order to move that cumbersome group into position against David and his men. Effectively, Hushai's intention is to allow David the time to regroup before the attack against him. Sure enough, verse number 14, Avshalom and all of the men of Israel agreed, better is the advice of Hushai from the advice of Achitophel, and the narrator adds a bracketed piece, God had commanded that the advice of Achitophel be foiled in spite of the fact that it was better, such that God should bring upon Avshalom his evil end. In effect, what we have in this moment is the turning point of the story. Even as Avshalom and his men confidently march into battle, Little do they know that the die has already been cast. They will be, they will be defeated. Immediately, Hushai indicates to Tzadok and Eviatar the priests to pass on the message of his advice and that of Achitophel to David so that David can flee, can cross the Jordan, and can await whatever the future may hold. Hushai does not know for sure that Avshalom's confidence in him will last. Perhaps in the end, Avshalom will choose Achitophel's advice. At, la at least that's what he worries about. And therefore, let the message be communicated to David quickly. Yonatan and Achimaatz, the sons of Evyatar and Sadok, make their way in order to carry the message to David and his men, but they are spotted by one of Avshalom's supporters. Quickly they go into hiding into the house of a man who lived in Bachurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they descend into that well. The woman of the household covers the well with some sort of a covering and places groats upon it, such that they are securely hidden. 
When the servants of Avshalom come to the woman into her house, demanding that she turn over Achimaatz and Yonatan, she says they have already gone, they have passed over the water reservoir, and so Avshalom's men did not find them, and they returned empty-handed to Jerusalem. Of course, this particular image of two messengers being hidden, being concealed by a woman, having that hiding place covered over with organic matter, all of this recalls the episode of Rachav the harlot in the second chapter of Joshua, who preserved Joshua's spies from the clutches of the king of Yericho by hiding them on her roof and concealing them under the stalks of flax that were drying on the roof. When the king of Jericho's messengers demanded that they be turned over, Rahav turned to them and said, it's too late, they have already fled. Try and capture them, but they're no longer here. In effect, this moment, this parallel, this analogy between our particular story and the story of Rahav and the spies of Yehoshua is meant to highlight something about the situation. Just like in the end, Joshua's spies survived and Joshua prevailed against Yericho, so too will it be with David and his men. And just as in the original story, the king of Jericho, cast as a tyrant, attempted to hunt down the spies, so too Avshalom attempts to hunt down David's messengers, effectively recasting himself as a tyrant. It is a commentary not only on David's future success, but as well on Avshalom's standing in the eyes of the narrator. He has, in fact, now become a tyrant, concerned with his own success and his success and victory only. Quickly, the messengers come to David. They report that he must flee immediately, lest Achitophel's advice be followed. David prepares to do so. They cross over the Yarden. And in the meantime, the text reports in verse number 23, when Achitophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey. He arose and he returned to his house and to his city. He left his last will and his testament and put his affairs in order. And he strangled himself. And then he died and was buried in the burial sepulchre of his father and his ancestors. Effectively, Achitophel knows that now that his, his advice has been spurned, it is only a matter of time before Avshalom is defeated. When Avshalom will be defeated and David will be restored, there can be only one ending for Achitophel the traitor, and that will be death. Rather than dying at the hands of David, Achitophel therefore chooses to die at his own hands. But it's another indication. Another indication in the text that in fact the die has been cast and Avshalom's rebellion is doomed to failure. David comes to Machanaim on the other side of the Arden. Avshalom is in pursuit with his new chief of staff, Amasa. 
Amasada son of Yeter, happens to be Yoav's cousin and David's nephew. And just as David's chief of staff is Yoav, Avshalom, his son's chief of staff, is Amasa. And so the people of Israel and Avshalom encamp in the land of the Gilad. In the meantime, David comes to Machanaim and he is confronted by supporters. Shovi, the son of Nachash, from, from Ammon, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodavar. The very same Machir, by the way, who had concealed Mephibosheth back in the second back in the second chapter uh, sorry back in the ninth chapter of Shimuel Bet and Barzilai Hagiladi these three men provide David and his men with all sorts of provisions with bedding and with food and with supplies and David and his men receive those supplies because they are in fact very, very tired and very hungry and very thirsty. So even as Avshalom is amassing his force, David and his men have now found the support of locals on the eastern side of the Ardennes, and it is only a matter of time before the battle breaks out. And so chapter 18 begins with David counting, mustering his forces. He divides them up into groups of thousands and groups of hundreds, and they are divided into three separate forces. One will be led by David's warrior, Yoav, and the other by Yoav's brother, Avishai, another one of David's great warriors. And the third force will be led by Itai Hagiti, the same Itai who refused David's words to not accompany him into exile, but in fact chose to follow. And now we appreciate why, because he will command the third force. David says, I will join you in battle. But his fighters refuse. They say to him, if you join us, that will be the focus of the attack. Just as Achitophel had advised, you remain behind and we will fight Avshalom and his men. As they go into battle, David commands Yoav, Avishai, and Itai, that is to say, the commanders of the force, and by extension, everyone in that force. Verse number five of chapter 18, Le'at li la'na'ar la'avshalom. Deal kindly with the lad of Shalom. Do not kill him. Do not harm him. And all of the people heard when the king uttered that command. So even as David wants Avshalom and his men to be defeated, he does not want Avshalom, his beloved son, to be harmed or to be killed. The people go out to fight Avshalom, and the battle rages in a very, very difficult and forested terrain. Avshalom's force is routed before David's men. Avshalom himself in retreat, verse number nine, happens to be riding on his parid, on his mule, 
In those days, of course, the Israelites did not employ horses in battle, but mules could move quite quickly as well. Avshalom rode on his mule. The mule went under the twisted branches of an oak tree, a great oak tree. And Avshalom's hair, which was reported earlier to be so luxurious and so lengthy and so full in the heat of this running mule, the flying hair is caught in the branches, the twisted branches of the oak tree. And there Avshalom is held fast by his hair, which is tangled in the branches. And the text reports, there he was suspended between the heaven and the earth, even as the mule continued to run from under him. So there's Avshalom hanging by his hair from this oak tree, suspended between heaven and earth. The mule has already run along and left him behind. It is an arresting image. Clearly, it has symbolic value. We might speculate that it's an attempt to encapsulate of Shalom's tragic downfall. Here was a man who was invested with a sense of what is right and what is just. And when Amnon raped his sister Tamar, he expected David, his father, the king, to respond in kind, to punish the perpetrator. But David did nothing of the sort. There was Avshalom, inspired as it were, with a heavenly justice and righteousness. But in the end, Avshalom fell prey to his own worship to the megalomania which characterizes tyrants, to the luxurious hair which spoke about his power and his privilege and his arrogance. And he was suspended by that hair between heaven and earth, neither there nor here, but suspended in between, waiting for his death. The rabbis in the Talmud, of course, keen to read of Shalom's downfall through the lens of Nemesis proclaimed in his hair he was vainglorious and by his hair he was destroyed. Midah keneged midah, measure for measure. One of the fighters reports to Yoav what has happened to Avshalom who remains suspended and alive and entangled in that oak? Yoav says, why didn't you kill him? I would have been happy to offer you a reward. And the man says, I'll tell you why. Isn't it obvious David made it clear that no harm is to come to his son? Yoav says, I will therefore do it myself. And therefore Yoav takes three darts plunges them into the heart of Avshalom, even as he was still alive in the heart of the tree, verse number 14, and then David's, sorry, and then Yoav's 10 followers, 10 armor bearers, finish Avshalom off. Yoav sounds the shofar, the people cease their attack, 
and effectively of Shalom's fighters now melt away. Of Shalom's body is taken down. He is thrown into a great pit and covered with a giant heap of stones, and all of Israel fled to their tents. Yoav once again shows himself to be someone who takes initiative even against David's explicit command, just as he had done in killing Avner. Now he kills Avshalom as well, with both of those things, of course, being against the explicit wishes of King David. And this is, of course, how Yoav operates. He will do what is best for David, even though David cannot do it himself. A final postscript. The text reports, while Avshalom was yet alive, he had set up for himself a monument in the Valley of the King, having said, I have no son who might memorialize my name. And therefore, that monument was called by his name Yad Avshalom, the monument of Avshalom until this very day. Of course, we heard earlier that Avshalom did in fact have children, three sons and a daughter named Tamar. Perhaps those sons died, or perhaps none of them were regarded as being worthy successors. Whatever the case may be, the tragic end of Avshalom is he will have his immortality, but it will not be through the mechanism which he had anticipated because he is dead and does not succeed in usurping the throne of his father David. Next time we'll consider the aftermath of Avshalom's death. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Pardis Institute of Jewish Studies in partnership with the Korn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.